Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out, and I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Finding Genius Podcast and the Surviving Hard Times Podcast. I have Laura Tew. She's a, what's called a County Extension Direct from County. She's associated with the University of Florida. I don't really have a how in her bio, but we'll ask her. So, Laura, thank you for coming. Thanks, Richard. I appreciate you asking me to be on the show. Yeah, if you would. I'm, uh, I don't know if most folks are familiar with what an extension agent is and uh, you know what you do. So, if you want to mind, you know, what's a bit about your bio and background, and then we'll we'll get into your current work. Okay. Well, it, it is a little bit complicated because you're right. A lot of people don't know what an extension agent is, and I have to go back a little bit in history to explain it. But <laughs> President Lincoln in, in 1862, after the Civil War, signed the Morrill Act, which gave us land-grant universities. And when you think of a lot of the big universities that have agriculture, like University of Florida or Ohio State, these universities were started with funds from a land grant 
uh, during that period of time. And they're often called 1862 colleges. Then in the hmm. 1890s, the historically black colleges and universities or the HBCUs that we have were added to also give separate but equal education for African Americans. So those are your big land grant universities across the United States. And most states have two, like we have Florida A&M University, which is our historically black college in Florida. And then we have University of Florida, which is the land grant institution. If you're a land grant institution, whether you're an 1890 or an 1862, you have three main functions. One is research. And that's why we get a lot of very high level research out of these land grant universities especially in agriculture, but now, of course, that has brought into every you know, aspect that you can think of or at these large universities. The second one is educating students, which is where you go to get your bachelor's, your master's, or your PhD. The little known third leg of that stool is the extension service. And the extension service was signed in to law back in 1912. And it basically, the government provided funding for these land grant universities to have people who would take the university to the public. So in the beginning, of course, these were agriculture colleges. So it started with people like Seaman Knapp, who was a, a cotton specialist. And he went out in the fields and talked to the farmers and they had this cotton bow weevil they had a problem with. So he took that information back to the university. They did research on it, came up with a plan. He takes it back to the farmers. And that's what the traditional role of an extension agent is, is we are that link between a land grant university and the farmers, the producers, the businesses. And of course, our clientele has expanded to the general public. My particular role is I have always been an aquaculture specialist. And so mm. I take aquaculture research in a lot of forms that's developed by universities and then transfer that to the public or the industry or whoever uh, happens to need that kind of uh, help. I'm currently a marine science extension agent because I have background in both marine and freshwater. And so I'm serving as a county extension director and a county agent in the panhandle of Florida. So a large part of my job deals with environmental education and marine issues, but I still have a significant portion that deals with aquaculture, aquaponics, and in all of its variety here in Florida. So they're, yeah, they're in a probably know, too big of nutshell is what an extension agent does. Sure. Um, yeah, maybe we can talk about aquaponics for a little bit or aqua actually what you know, what is the difference between aquaponics and aquaculture, or is it just two different names for the same thing? No, it's, it's not. It, it's uh, aquaponics is probably a subset of aquaculture. Aquaculture mm. is rearing things in water and it can be animals, plants. Of course, there's shrimp, there's fish and sea vegetables are a big growing sector. And shellfish, of course, is is growing as well, which are invertebrates. So there's a lot of different things that can be grown in aquaculture. Aquaponics is a production technique under aquaculture where you're rearing fish and plants in a closed system and you're using the waste product from the fish to fertilize the plants in this environment where you're in a recirculating environment. So it's just one of the many production methods of aquaculture. So is even hydroponics a form of aquaculture? It is not. No, that's just considered a form of agriculture. That's a production method uh, in agriculture. So I would not, aquaculture has to have I guess probably the fish and vertebrate sea vegetable part to it. And hydroponics is strictly just the plant. So 
But that's a good question. You know, aqua. Hmm. No, I mean, I wouldn't consider it in the definition, but I've never been okay. asked that question. So that was a good one. <laughs> oh, good. I'm off to a good start. There you go. I guess just a, just a couple more terms. Um, I've spoken to a horticulturist, an agronomist. You're an extension agent. I mean, what what is a horticulturist versus an agronomist or is it this or that or, you know, or is it just different terms for similar type things? Well, you know, Richard, we've spent all this money going to college, so we have to call ourselves something special. A uh, horticulturist is a scientist that deals with plants. An agronomist typically focuses more row crop plants like your wheat, corn, cotton, peanuts uh, here in Florida, and the relationship between the plants and the soil. An aquaculturist is somebody who deals with uh, growing, again, fish and vertebrates and, and uh, mm. help now is a popular sea vegetable that's being grown and so they're just uh they're just technical names for the type of science uh, that you're involved in okay all right very good well um maybe a few questions about uh aquaculture and then we'll you know we can go on to the marine aspect of what you're doing but when you were doing uh aquaculture what were some of the projects you're working on that were interesting or you know what were some of like the interesting things you discovered oh my gosh so i've been doing aquaculture uh for over 30 years, I started way back in the 80s in the tropical fish industry here in Florida, mm. and then transitioned. I got uh, my master's at Mississippi State, uh, so learned a lot about catfish there and was actually growing some largemouth bass for some, uh, like everybody thinks of aquaculture as food fish production, but there's also a big sector for restocking natural systems. And, that, and now, of course, there's uh, even more sectors. There's, uh, you know, they're growing them for to, to replenish sponge populations. And even sea urchins are being grown in aquaculture now to do restoration type work. And after that, I actually worked at a historically black college in Frankfort, Kentucky, called Kentucky State University. And I really hit my stride there. I was there a little over seven years. And the researchers there, we worked on all kinds of freshwater aquaculture fish. We worked on trout. We did catfish. We did largemouth bass. We did bluegill. We did, and we started the first freshwater prawn research there that we had brought up from Mississippi up to Kentucky. So I had the advantage while working there. I was working mostly in nutrition, fish nutrition, but I had the advantage of getting to work with multiple different species, which was really exciting. This was in the early 90s, Richard, and we were doing work on a hemp-based diet for fish, even though we hmm. had to get our hemp from Canada because it wasn't legally grown in the United States. So it's funny now to see, you know, 20 plus years later, some of these same things uh, coming back around. I then moved on to Ohio State, where I eventually became the state specialist for aquaculture. And the species we were focusing on there were uh, mostly uh, yellow perch was our big species that we folks focused on, but I also did work on still a lot of freshwater prawn, bringing that product up to Ohio. Um, tilapia, bluegill was another one that we were working on. And we were doing some pretty high level stuff. We were working on genetic selection uh, for yellow perch, selecting for larger sizes uh, as a food fish. And for the bluegill, we were working on all male production of bluegill using a super female uh, technique. Because a lot of fish are sexually dimorphic, which means the males and the females are two different sizes. And so with bluegill, of course, it's the male that's the big fish. So if you can produce all males and you're going for a food fish, you're going to be able to produce larger fish. 
This is the same thing that they do for tilapia, but most people. Yeah, are- Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Lend itself towards not much diversity genetically in the fish and, you know, using the same ones over and over and over the same female to produce your line and kind of making it, you know, narrowing the, uh, the diversity of the fish and maybe exposing them to more disease possibility. And that that's a very good point. And we definitely uh, take that into consideration. All of the broodstock are genetically tested and they're only matched with other broodstock that are not genetically related to them. So when you have broodstock, that's that valuable, you, con- you you make sure that 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 you're not creating that type of genetic bottleneck is what you're I think you're referring to. So yes, that's yeah. definitely yeah. taken into consideration. Yeah, I know with certain crops like bananas, all there is is Cavendish bananas. And, mm-hmm. You know, with rubber, there's only one kind of plant, and you know, I just hope that uh, that's not the way growth of various crops is going. And you know, even with uh, aquaculture, the same thing. Because I think it, it could be disastrous yeah. later if they did. Yeah. And again, it depends on what your end product is. Is your end product going to be a food product? Or like I said, a big growing sector of aquaculture is the restoration work that's going on. Restoration aquaculture, growing fish and shellfish and sea vegetables to restore areas that have been significantly damaged. So Mm. it would depend on what your end product was, is what your genetics are. And, And we'll talk a little bit more if we get into offshore aquaculture. That is one of the requirements that you have to use broodstock that are genetically similar to, well, they're actually identical. They're from like in the Gulf of Mexico, the broodstock have to come from the Gulf of Mexico. You are not allowed to raise species outside the Gulf of Mexico in the Gulf of Mexico. So those things are very much taken into consideration. They're just not often talked about in the general public. Hmm. Yeah, a friend of mine is in Panama. He said that the aquaculture has completely collapsed recently because I guess they've allowed you know, certain uh, nasty organisms to get in there and essentially sicken everything. So it's, you know, I guess it's, a, it's, a, it's probably a really important topic. I'm not sure how it's managed, but it came up at least in that context. So. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. I had, I've, I've not heard that about the farm. Was he talking about the shrimp farms? Yeah. Or- yep, the shrimp and, uh, and I forget what else, but yep, definitely the shrimp. Yep. Yeah. They, they, exactly. There are some, you know, aquaculture is an international it's more in other countries than it is in the United States. I mean, right now we're importing 90% of our seafood. Other countries wow. have, been, have embraced it and grown it. The United States is kind of slower on the uptake because we, we have the, the super, super cautious principles of making sure bad things don't happen. You know, of course, you can't prevent bad things 100%, but there are a lot of checks and balances in place in the United States that there are not necessarily, are, aren't necessarily there in other countries. Yeah. So what, what's involved in the marine aquaculture? You know, like what's an example of species that's grown and how are they grown? And 
et cetera. So, so the biggest, the fastest growing marine aquaculture right now in the Gulf of Mexico and even up the East Coast is actually the shellfish industry. Shell, shellfish, oysters, and clams. I don't know if you've been able to spend any time here on the Gulf Coast. No, not yet. Yeah, the wild populations of shellfish have declined. Uh, catches are declining, just like all of our wild fisheries. They've either leveled out or declined. And so aquaculture is helping to feel, fill that gap. And shellfish has a lot of advantages because it, a shellfish is a filter feeder. And so they don't have to be fed like a diet, which uh, a pelleted diet, which is one of the largest expenses oh. in thin fish aquaculture. And so these small shellfish spat, the babies, are put out in these floating cages and turned. Well, here in the Gulf of Mexico, we can raise a, a, a restaurant-sized oyster in a year. Where up on the East Coast, it can take, uh, you know, upwards up to Maine, it can take up to two years, sometimes three years to get a restaurant Hmm. size. So it's really growing here. And especially since the wild harvest has been shut down in some of the most famous oyster fisheries, like the Apalachicola oyster fishery, our fish and wildlife has actually closed that fishery for the next five years to try to help it uh, rebound. So aquaculture farms are really growing. And the restaurants have embraced this. They're they're uh, sold in all the restaurants. We're doing some work now on training restaurant staff to be able to educate their customers on, is this a wild oyster? Is this an aquaculture oyster? Where did it come from? What does that mean in terms of, of taste? What will it mean in terms of nutrition or health? So we have a, a program right now where we're going into restaurants. Uh, we, we just started it and in, in educating the wait staff so that they'll be able to transition from maybe a history of only serving wild oysters to now the current reality where they may get some wild oysters out of Louisiana, but most of their product is going to be aquacultured. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So what is the difference? Is the nutritional difference, taste difference? What's different? There's no nutritional difference. They're they're grown in the same water, but it's interesting, the, t- the taste difference, they're they sell a lot of the aquaculture products as boutique oysters. Because of an oyster is going to taste like the environment it's raised in, it really depends on where the farm is located. It can bring a very distinctive taste to the oyster. If you're in an area of high salinity, you're going to have a much saltier, obviously, oyster. Where if you're in a bay where maybe you have a little uh, less salinity, it'll be a less salty oyster. So people are really trademarking their oysters almost like you would a craft beer. They're giving them mm. some really, really interesting names like Salty Susans. And you know, mm. Salty Susans come from Alligator Harbor over in a- Apalachicola or or uh, Gulf Bay Oysters, which comes from uh, Pensacola Bay over, you know. So it's it's really interesting how, uh, how the farmers are marketing their products. All right. So uh, again, they grow in the same water. I mean, what does it look like? Are people lowering... Let's say there's a buoy and then below the buoy, there's a, a line of, I don't know, porous or, you know, like kind of bird houses type things where they, the, the, the shellfish can go and live and hang out. Like what does an aquaculture setup look like in the ocean? Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> that's an interesting uh, visual you have there. Well, here in the Gulf of Mexico, our oysters are actually floating in net bags. So it's black net bag. It has about... I would say a quarter inch mesh. So imagine a, a, a plastic net bag. It's about three feet long by two feet wide. 
And so it looks like a pillow, a big pillow that's on your bed. And then they put the baby oysters inside of it. They, they have a, a smaller net inside when they're small and they float in a big, long line. So you may have, you know, 10 to 20 of these pillows, these net pillows lined up between two telephone pole type structures. And then five feet away, you have another line of 20. And then you have another line of 20 and you have another line of 20. So if you're on a bridge and you look out there and you see 10 lines of these black plastic, you know, cages, oyster cages floating in the water, you know that's an oyster farm. Clams, on the other hand, are down on the bottom. They sink them down and, and you typically don't, don't see them. So the production method varies a little between the two species. But what the farmer does is he puts the oysters in there. He has to turn the bags, right? Anything in the water is going to get fouling on it. They have predators like oyster drills. So the farmer has to go out there and turn his crop, uh, make sure it stays clean, make sure the size is growing properly. A lot of different chores throughout that year-long growing season. Sometimes they combine bags and, and do different things. So it is, you know, there's definitely some husbandry involved in it. Okay, so I mean, when you when it comes time to uh, harvest them, are they just pulling out a lot, you know a buoy with all these bags attached to it, and they're magically full of full of delicious oysters, or what's happening? That's right, that's right. It actually they they're using the same boats that they used when they were harvesting wild oy- oysters, which they used to go out with these big scissor like tongs and break off chunks of the oyster uh, reef and and bring it up on the boat. Right. They have these real flat boats that have the motor in the front instead of the back. And so they have a winch on the back of the boat and they hook it up to these nets because they're quite heavy now, right? They're full of oysters and they reel it in and put the, the oysters on the boat. They usually have some orange baskets on there, dump them in the baskets. Anything that's not supposed to be there gets, you know, thrown back and then they haul them in and there's a processing plant right on the shoreline. So they pull up to the dock. The uh, oysters typically go into the processing plant. Oyster processing plant looks a lot like a fish processing plant. There's usually um, some women in there and and they have a big pile of oysters next to them and they're shucking oysters. Um, And then some of the oysters will go to the restaurant market. So they're not shucked. They're just bagged in smaller bags and they're tagged, everything. There's, you know, temperature control throughout the whole process. Everything is controlled controlled by the Department of Agriculture. Everybody's licensed and leased. And uh, there's a, a big paper trail that goes so along what's, with those What's oysters. the downsides or what's the difficulties of, of farming this way? The downsides are, some of the downsides we're seeing in the growth here is that in Florida, we have so much rain. A lot of these oyster farms are in the protected bays. They're not out in the open ocean because they can't handle that kind of wave action. So they're closer to shore and and they're in the protected base. And when we get a lot of rain, we have a lot more runoff than we used to because of all the development and the hardscaping. um, We have a lot more stormwater coming off of our urban areas, which are surrounding our bays now. So that means more fresh water coming into the bay faster than ever before. And it's actually quickly changing the salinity for some of these farms. And we have had some farms that have located in areas initially and then found them to be too much fresh water and the oysters would not survive. So that's one issue. And the farmer has had to lease another area and, and maybe move to a, an area that has better water quality. What are some of the ways to improve their survivability even out in the ocean? Can they go deeper? Like what, what is the ideal depth? And Well, these are floating. You know, what... these, these are floating on the oh. surface. 
in usually very shallow areas. So usually um, the water is, you know, five to 10 feet deep at the most. In fact, they like it when the water is shallow enough at low tide that you can stand with water at your waist so you can turn your bags uh, easier. So these are shallow waters, but it's more about the salinity that they need to get to. The other challenge is it's growing so fast. There's so many farms now and so many people are, you know, getting into the business that our oyster hatcheries can't keep up. The hatcheries that produce the baby oyster, that's really the high tech part of the industry is producing the baby oysters, getting them to reproduce. And then you get them on, it's called green water because they're, you know, they're eating algae. You have to, so the hatcheries aren't able to produce enough spat to supply enough seed to all the farms because there's so many farms. So I hear farmers saying, I didn't get enough seed this year. I could only plant, you know, three quarters of my farm. So that's another challenge that the university through our research, you know, is trying to help the farmers overcome. What if, what if um, you put uh, like salt pellets in with like, you know, somehow time release into each of these net bags. So then if you put it in the bay and there's freshwater intrusion, that it, it mitigates that. Yeah, it wouldn't be enough. I mean, imagine, you know, I mean, people and, and salt's very expensive. Even using artificial salt in aquaculture in an indoor recirculating system is usually cost prohibitive. And you imagine in a net bag, it would immediately dissolve and go through the, you know, the net material and, and be out of there. The, the the volume of the water there is just way too high for that to work. But, you know, that's how, you know, I always say I have to come up with 10 bad ideas to get one good one. So keep thinking. <laughs> Actually, the important thing is citing these farms where they're appropriate, where there is good water quality. So monitoring that water quality before the farm goes in. To, you know, to make sure that they're they're in a good quality area so that you can help negate that problem. So is there um, room for a lot more farms to be put in or is it, you know, are all the juicy areas taken or? or like... <laughs> yeah. So um, all of the farms, all, all of the locations around the state of Florida have been surveyed and, and analyzed by the Florida Department of Agriculture. They are the ones that control what we call the leases. That is how you get to be able to put out a shellfish farm is that you lease an area that has been pre-approved. So these areas have already been pre-approved as suitable for oyster culture, and they will give you a permit that you can put a farm out there. And again, you have to undergo, if you want to be an oyster farmer, there's all kinds of training you have to undergo so that you know about licenses and you know about temperature and harvesting and all the things. And we have all of that online. There's a lot of training available online. And so a lot of the good, the juicy places, as you like to call them, a lot of those have been taken up early in in the growth, but there's still plenty of of leases out there. So I I think there's room for for more more growth. And I mean, just a, a couple of years ago, there were no farms in Pensacola Bay. And now we have three, maybe four farms over there. So that's just in the last couple of years. Well, what are, I mean, what's involved? Like why why all the regulation and training and all that? Like what what are farmers doing things that are deleterious to the environment? If they're not. No, 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 no. no. It's all food safety training. So of course, oysters, like any raw seafood product, if you ever go to a restaurant, it says eating raw seafood, you know, Mm -hmm. you're taking your own, you you know, there, there are some some gastrointestinal diseases that could happen from eating any raw seafood, whether it's raw tuna or even kelp or or whatever. 
And so the yeah. time and temperature is really important for oysters. If you remember, and I don't know how old you are, but back in the day, they said only eat oysters in the months that have an R in them. Oh, really? Have you ever heard that saying? No. Uh, no. The old timers will say only eat. So this is September through April, March, April. Yeah. So people didn't eat oysters in May, June, July, and August. Well, that's because the water temperature is very hot. And when hmm. water temperature is hot, bacteria and other things can, can breed. Well, nowadays, because of the way that we handle oysters and oysters are immediately put into the cold chain process, and again, they're, they're timed, they're bagged, everything's marked on stickers. If you go buy a bag of oysters, it has a big sticker on it and it'll tell you what farm that was raised on, when it was harvested, when it, you know, when it got bagged, all that is time stated on there. So now with aquaculture product, it has extended the season where you can eat oysters year round. Unlike well, I, you know, I, I love raw oysters and I go to a place and they're like, oh, we have East Coast or we have South Bay or we have this or that. Um, so when oysters are located in the ocean, does it have to be that particular species that normally would, you know, would, would needs a lot of salinity? Are they trying to match the oyster type to where it's grown or is that not as important? No, they are grown in the, I mean, they're grown in the, the bays are connected to the ocean. They're not, it's not fresh water. I no, mean, but they're like, like like let's say uh, making this up, I, I don't know, an oyster in the in the Gulf versus one uh, on the East Coast. Maybe the salinity is twenty percent more, and those oysters, you know, are normally more salty, and that's just how they are. That's where they live. So yes, if you put yes. you know oyster A in a different environment than it normally is in, let's say ten percent less salinity or ten percent more, does it mess the oyster up, or is it still okay to grow them in places they might not normally grow? Yeah, these are all eastern oysters. They're all the same species that are grown all the way up the east coast. But again, up in the east coast, they are grown in a different environment. They are in colder water. They take two years to grow to size than the Gulf of Mexico, where they're in a warmer environment. They can grow to size in one year. And even up there, you may get varying, varying salinities. Because if you look, a lot of the oysters are grown in bays up there as well. And if they get too much freshwater input, they're in for the same same issues. What happens to them if there's, if there's too much freshwater or too much salinity? What happens to the oysters? Well, you can't really get too much salinity, but too much freshwater oh. will kill oysters. Oh, really? Huh. Mm -hmm. What, osmotically, they just can't handle it and they explode or well, something? Or what happens to them? <laughs> yeah, they, well, they, yeah, they just, they, they die. They won't grow sure. and then they die. They won't, they won't feed, they won't grow. But I mean, we have, and, and they certainly won't grow at, you know, the densities that you have on a, on an oyster farm where they're all packed in, into a bag. So what do they, uh, what do the oysters eat typically, you know, when what they're is, out in the ocean, what are they filtering through to eat? Filtering uh, algae. Oh, okay. They're all filter feeders. They have, they have one tube in and one tube out. So hmm. they suck water in and they, they filter out the, uh, the algae and then they Spit the water and the the waste out the other tube. And this is one reason people, like if you look in terms, you know, aquaculture is very controversial. You'll see a lot of media pros, cons of, of aquaculture. And you really have to do your homework um, to, to, to know what you believe. But shellfish is one of the least controversial because they are so sustainable. They don't really take anything out of the environment, yet they clean the water. One oyster cleans 50 gallons of water every day. And so oh, wow. when you have oysters in an area, you tend to have much higher water quality because you have a bunch of little filter feeders uh, going hmm. on. 
So people don't seem to mind it. We do get some pushback from the NIMBY population. Like people don't want to look out on their beautiful bay when they just bought their, you know, $5 million home and see these bags floating in the bay, even if they're in nice straight lines and everything. So we do get some people who object to uh, oyster farms being in the nearshore mm. environment, but it's more because of how they look. Most people are thrilled um, having shellfish as a point of aquaculture. And even some of that uh, pushback on like the offshore finfish aquaculture, they say, let's just stick with the shellfish aquaculture and the sea vegetables. They like these organisms that feed lower on the food chain and have um, what they consider some environmental benefits. What about, you know, hypoxic zones in the Gulf or, you know, or in the ocean? You know, legend has it there are, there are some and they're spreading. Um, what happens if, if, you know, how do oysters deal with uh, lower oxygen environments if it occurs? They, they die. Just, yeah. <laughs> What'd you say? They explode. They die also. Yeah, there are the hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico, which is at the mouth of the Mississippi River. After it comes, you know, through Louisiana and out into the Gulf, uh, there is a big hypoxic zone. It's actually shrinking changes. It changes the area changes. You know, it grows and swells. It's a moving, it's a moving beast. But so it's, you know, you, you certainly would not want to plant any oyster farms out in an area that could be impacted by, by that. But we don't have that in most mm. of the nearshore environments. That's a very offshore uh, event, deep water. But it is a concern what? for offshore aquaculture. So Shellfish is considered more nearshore marine aquaculture. Mm. The next stage that is coming up is offshore aquaculture, which is raising fish in pens or pods miles off of shore. And that's the project I've been working on is I've been working with a group that is putting a demonstration pod, which is a big fish cage, 17 meters in diameter, 45 miles off the coast of Sarasota, Florida, which if you don't know is about halfway down the peninsula on the west side of Florida. 45 miles off the coast is where it gets deep enough for this pod to go. They're going to be stocking it with Almaco Jack, which is a native fish with from broodstock from the Gulf of Mexico, right. and doing a one-year demonstration project where they're attempt they're going to attempt to grow like 20,000 pounds of fish in a year. The whole process it was funded in part by a grant from Florida Sea Grant, which is how I got involved because we're doing, there's a huge permitting process involved in going offshore aquaculture, which is why there are no offshore aquaculture facilities in mm. the United States to this date because they haven't been able to get through the permitting process. This What, what about if... Um... I think it's what, 12 miles offshore is still, let's say, U.S. water, but after no, that, these, it's international. But I guess no, these, these are, are even... these are in federal waters. These are in federal waters. Gotcha. These are still, in, yeah, up to 200 miles is federal. Oh, wow. So these, yeah, you're talking state waters in most places are, are, are three miles. In Florida, I think it's up to, to nine miles, and then it becomes federal waters. So these are offshore hmm. aquaculture in federal waters. So there's a lot okay. of permitting through Army Corps of Engineers, EPA, and they're going through this process to get this demonstration pod permitted. It's not even a farm, um, mm. but there's another farm called Manifish Farms that is going through the permitting process to put a farm off the coast of Pensacola. 
Now, the whole permitting process for offshore this offshore aquaculture in federal waters, this one demonstration pod research, they've been working on the permit for four years. This okay. is not an easy process. There are a lot of hoops to jump through. There are a lot of agencies that have a stake in this. And so it's very, and since it's the first one, of course, you know, that people are being super, super cautious, which is a good thing. And so we're putting this pod out there. Now the EPA uh, has given their permitting. They're still waiting for their Army Corps permits. But, you know, they had to meet requirements from the Endangered Species Act. They had to undergo siting. Yes. There were benthic studies. There's still going to be this whole thing for the whole year is just going to be one big research project. If we put this pod out there and these fish, they're going to be researching all the parameters surrounding it so that then we'll have that information to apply to other farms. Because doing things in a laboratory is one thing. But then being right, able yeah. to replicate that in a real world situation, that's the next step. And that's where we're headed. Um, an idea came to me. What about, you know, with the bags that the oysters are in? What about if you could uh, grow certain, you know, water plants in there, you know, in the bag with that or on the on the outside of the bag? You know, could you put seeds in there somehow and grow plants so that there's kind of a micro environment created for the oysters in the bag that uh, would be beneficial to them? Yeah, so there is a there's also another production method that they're explore, exploring called multitrophic aquaculture. And this is where you do exactly that. You have a couple of different types of aquaculture going on in the same area and they synergize with each other. So they're getting ready to put one in Mobile Bay. They have one on the East Coast, I think in New Jersey, but I'm not sure. But in Mobile Bay, it's a fish cage. They're going to be raising fish. And then they surround that with oysters. So the oysters filter the water that the fish are pooping and eating in. And then outside of that, they're growing sea vegetables on the outside. So they're growing three different crops in one system. And that's called MTA or multitrophic aquaculture. It's been experimented with a lot in other countries. Um, it's, it works on a very small scale. I haven't seen it ramp up to commercial scale. Very similar to aquaponics. Aquaponics, you have to know about fish and plants. So you're looking at two different types of, of you know, husbandry methods. Well, now in multitrophic aquaculture, you have to know about fish and oysters and plants. And so it seems always a good idea in theory when you can synergize things, but sometimes in application, working with just one makes it more feasible well i was just picturing these black nets laying on the surface of the water and you said some people complain but you know if they had a, a few plants impregnated into them and the plants grew into the netting you know I, I don't know i just wonder you know then you're not really dealing with other fish let's say maybe the fish would eat the plants i don't know but maybe that would uh make a better environment for the wasters that are sitting there i don't know well it, it would be hard for yeah the the it's first off, you'd have to have plants that can grow in that environment. And then their roots mm. might wrap around the oysters and they can't open up mm. the filter there. I, I could see some, some problems and you have to turn the bag. So then the plants would be underwater. <laughs> oh, okay. So the, yeah, keep thinking there, Richard, you know, you're on, you're on bad idea. Number three, you're getting close to my 10 mark. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, so what do you see as the, the future of this, uh, you know, the oyster and other shellfish aquaculture, like where's it heading? You think, in the near term, in the next couple of years. Oh, I think it's going to continue to grow. We've got um, we've got programs now in the high schools uh, where kids are getting interested at an earlier age. There's um, in in the uh, FFA and the tech schools. They're offering opportunities for kids to work around the oyster industry. 
to, to help it grow. I think with the offshore aquaculture, I think we're going to get this pod stocked. You're going to read about it early next spring off of Sarasota. And I believe that more farms are going to be coming into the Gulf of Mexico. And I think it's high time that the, the U.S. got on board with aquaculture because it's not to it's not replacing our wild fisheries. Our wild fisheries are sustainable, but demand is increasing. So the only way the demand is going to be met is through aquaculture because our wild fisheries are not going to increase. We have to meet increased demand through either population growth or people changing their diets to incorporate more seafood for health reasons. Uh, we have to, that growth is all going to come through aquaculture. So even yeah. though it's controversial and some people don't like it, I think a lot of the pushback is from people having outdated information about aquaculture. And I think if they took the time to research it, uh, they would feel more comfortable with where the industry has evolved over the past 20 years. Okay, very good. Well, Laura, what's the best place for people to find out more about your work and propose their own uh, good or bad ideas to you? <laughs> well, you can check out the Florida Sea Grant uh, website, and that is th uh, three different words, Florida Sea Grant. Uh, we have a nice website with lots of links to all kinds of information, uh, including those uh, shellfish culture classes, which are free online. Anybody can take them, even if you don't want to be a, a shellfish farmer and you're just interested. And people can also send me an email. I mean, I'm an extension agent. My job is to educate. So if you put my email on the, the podcast uh, notes, I will answer as I'm able. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Laura. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Richard. I had a great time. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.